If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Luke chapter number 26. This series is Jesus Said What? This week, we're building on something we began last week. It's really, it's a negative. This week, we're talking about hate your family. Last week, we have some words of Jesus where he literally says, it's a direct quote, he says, the world hates you. Real negative. And we're building on a foundation of Jesus' teaching. And what he's teaching his disciples at that time was the world doesn't understand you. The world doesn't like you. The world, in fact, hates you. And all of his disciples were going to suffer because of the name of Jesus. They just didn't know it yet. And Jesus was warning them. And he says the world hates you, but not because of you or because they don't like your skin color or they don't like your personality or they don't like something about you. He says it's because they don't know God and they don't know and love me. And because we're associated with Jesus, the scripture says the world hates you. And then Jesus uses some other phrases about hate in Luke chapter number 14. Now, anytime we come across a passage that's difficult in Scripture, we have a natural tendency to skip over it. Have you ever read something or read a document, maybe a medical form, and they have a bunch of words that are seemingly impronounceable? And you come across, and how many of you spend the time to sound out every syllable? No, what you do, you skip over that word and go, okay, it's a big word, and to the next one. And... We have a natural tendency to do that with Scripture. We come across a passage that says something a bit odd. We go, hmm, I don't understand that. Or that makes me feel uncomfortable. So my natural thing is to skip it. But we believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God. Therefore, it's there for a reason. And it's up to us to delve into the Scripture, to look at the context, to look at supporting Scriptures and other Bible passages, and see how it all fits together as a whole, and then we come to a conclusion and we, we teach. That's why message preparation and sermon preparation takes a long time, because you do all this research, and then I put like one thing down on the page. So we're going to delve into this passage and we're going to read. And this is to put you in a little bit of context is during a time period of a bit of transition in Jesus's ministry. Previously, he had been actively out preaching and performing miracles and the crowds were coming. And Jesus is just finishing up that part of his ministry where he's substantiating himself as as the Messiah and performing miracles. And the crowds are following. He's very popular during this time. And it's a transition time when in the rest of Luke, he he very rarely does he perform miracles. Now he's he's teaching and he's telling parables and he's talking directly to his followers not to the masses. So we're right in the middle of this transition time in Jesus' ministry. And it says in Luke chapter 14, verse number 25, Now great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes after me and does not, here's that word, hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, some of you, when you heard that you're, you're allowed to hate your brother and sister, you got a little bit excited there. And you can easily take scripture out of context. I have two sisters that I get along really well with because they live two hours away now. And they used to live across the hall from me. 
and they were annoying. And when you come across scripture that goes, hate your sister, you're like, thank you. I put it on a T-shirt. Like, finally, the scripture allows me to do what it is that I want to do. And that's what I was going to talk about. And we're going to delve into that more as we go along. But he's talking about priorities here. And he goes on in verse number 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost? Whether he had enough to complete it. Otherwise, whether he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish. All who see to all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, if any of you... And he summarizes it with verse 33. If any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus is teaching some really strong things here. That's chapter 14. In chapter 13, we see Jesus lamenting over Jerusalem. He loves these people. He's not telling these crowds of people, go away, you're annoying me. It's the opposite. He's giving them a reality check. He's, he'd previously been mourning over Jerusalem, saying, oh, I would love to have gathered you together. I love you, Jerusalem. I love you, people. And he, in reference, he's looking at us and saying, I love you, but there's so much more I have for you. And Jesus had crowds of people following him because they wanted to see a show. They wanted to see the next big thing, him to say something profound or to perform a miracle. Can you imagine how annoying it would be if, if you didn't show up the day that Jesus did something re remarkable, like feed the 5,000, and you go, oh, I should have shown up that day. I missed it. And they were there anticipating that Jesus do something remarkable. If you've ever come across or, or met a magician, the first thing that comes to your mind when you meet a magician is, show me a trick, isn't it? And if you meet a comedian, the first thing you think, you may not say it, is like, I hope he makes me laugh. You know, make me laugh. Tell me a joke. And that's kind of what the people are doing here. They're looking at Jesus and saying, okay, do something that entertains us. And Jesus says, I have something so much better for you. So we need to reprioritize. And our principle for today is this. And every Sunday we have a principle that we seek to apply to our life. And this week it is, Jesus calls you to put him first in every area of your life. That was so easy to say, but let's personalize that. Let's take the you and make it a me for, you, for everyone. It says, Jesus calls me to put him first in every area of my life. That statement is easy to say. It's a lifetime journey. Now, this morning, we're not talking about salvation. We're talking about discipleship. And as we delve into this, we have two points. And if you have your bulletin, in your bulletin, you'll find the message notes. You'll be able to follow along. And I hope it's a help to you and also helps you remember what we're talking about this morning. The two points are count the cost and consider the reward. 
So the first point is count the cost. So Jesus is speaking to the crowds of people after some entertainment, and he gives them the reality check, and, and he summarizes in verse 33, and it says, So therefore, if any of you does not renounce all that he has, cannot be my disciple. Now, when you hear the word cannot, oftentimes we think that we are the exception. We think, well, you might not be able to, but I can. You might not be strong enough or smart enough or faithful enough, but I can be. And Jesus makes a definitive statement here and says, no, it doesn't matter how smart you are, your education. It doesn't matter what skin color you are or where you where you're born or where you've grown up. It doesn't matter what your job is. It doesn't matter how big your bank account is. It says there you cannot be my disciple. The word disciple literally means a follower. In fact, more specifically, it means a learner. And Jesus, when he called his disciples, he called them to leave everything behind and to be learners of him or followers of him. Now here, I want to make a very clear distinction. This is not talking about salvation. Salvation is a free gift given to us by God. No amount of giving up everything will earn your salvation. Salvation is only through grace, through faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone. If we, could be e- we could easily misinterpret this and go down a negative route of workspace salvation where somehow you had to earn it, you had to be good enough, you had to, you had to pay enough or to do enough good things in order to earn your salvation. That's not what this passage is talking about. He's talking about being a follower. You know Christ is your Savior. Now what? I want to stand before God one day, as the parable describes it, And the master says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter now into the joy of your Lord. I want just to make it to heaven, but I I also want God to say, well done. And that's what it's talking about here, being a disciple, a learner. When Jesus called his disciples to leave everything behind and follow him, using the example of the ones that were by the Sea of Galilee, the fishermen, He called them to leave their nets and to follow me. And they literally got up, left the nets behind, unclean nets, and they go, we're going to follow Jesus. And you think beyond that, they left everything behind. They left their job. They left their security. They left their family. Within that, they would have left their identity because it would have been Peter, James, and John. Well, they're fishermen. And anytime you meet someone new, normally you shake their hand and you say, Hi, how are you? You ask their name. And the very second question is, What do you do? These men were leaving behind their identity, their home, everything they knew, and said, Now I'm only a follower of Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus Christ is calling us to do, to be followers. Because, and here's a real key behind that, the disciples could not have remained beside the Sea of Galilee as fishermen and followed him at the same time. You can't be two places at once. They had to physically leave behind and become followers. You can't follow and stay. So we're going to look at two different aspects in here that Jesus calls us to count the cost. And the question behind this is, is it worth it? 
Is it worth it to be a follower or a disciple of Jesus Christ? And Jesus invites us to ask that question. Count the cost. And first of all, we see, is it worth it to follow over our family? And we'll see verses 26 and also in verse 33, it says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So therefore, if anyone does not renounce all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. Now, the word that is the Aramaic word translated as hate is correctly translated as hate in this term. In this passage. But in the Eastern culture and the way they look at things, they often do a lesser to greater. And this is a comparison uh, way of thinking. So within this context, every Bible commentator I read agreed with, with what I'm going to say here. No one says the Bible says you have to hate your family. Like, I'm sorry, I hate you. That's not what it says there at all. Here's the key. In that context, it literally means to love less. I love Jesus and following him is so important in my life. In comparison, I, would, I hate my family. Now, obviously, you don't hate your family because we don't find that consistent with Jesus Christ and loving others. But in comparison, I, I love my wife so much. In comparison, I'm going to use you, you as an example. I hate you. I love you so, less than my wife. When a soldier goes to war, that's a good way to think of this. They don't hate their family, but they love their country and they love their calling. And they made such a commitment that they have left behind their family. They love less their family to go and serve. When a student leaves their family and goes from here to Perth and goes to uni, it doesn't mean that they hate their family, but they love the prospect of the education and a, a prospect of a career in the future and the experience of uni. So therefore, for a time, they leave their family and they love less their family and they go to uni. There's a man named C.S. Lewis, who was a Christian apologist. He, he died, actually, a number of years ago, but he's still well-known. He's most well-known for the Narnia series of books, and they, they've made movies. And he was a deep thinker. And after his death, they compiled a number of his letters together and a number of his writings, and they put it together as a book. In fact, there's a couple of different books in this, but this one particular one is called The Letters of C.S. Lewis. So you know, there was a lot of thought went into the, the, the title of this, of this book. And they compiled all these letters together, and he's talking about how the benefits of loving God. And he uses his family or his wife, and he calls her dearest in this passage. It's not on the screen, so I just want you to listen to my words here. He says, To love you as I should, I must worship God as creator. When I have learned to love God better than my earthly dearest, I shall love my earthly dearest better than I do now. Insofar as I learn to love my earthly dearest at the expense of God and instead of God, I shall be moving towards a state in which I shall not love my earthly dearest at all. And he summarizes it with this sentence. When first things are put first, second things are not suppressed, but increased. 
When you learn to love and to follow and be a disciple of Jesus Christ and love less your family, you will naturally love your family more because you know and to love Jesus more. That's a beautiful compromise, isn't it? Because if it was the opposite, like, I'm sorry, I'm going to be all alone and miserable in this life because I love Jesus. That's not what we find at all. Jesus Christ in the gifts keeps giving and giving and giving us more and more capacity to love and to be loved. In verse 33, it uses a word called renounce. That word renounce literally means to say goodbye to. It's to say farewell. And it says there that we are to say farewell to all that he has. And we think saying goodbye to our stuff or saying goodbye to our relationships. So I was thinking through that. The the image came to my mind of of a wedding ceremony. And I've performed a number of wedding ceremonies. And you have the couple that come together and they hold hands and they're sweaty and they're holding hands. And you begin with what I call as the statement of intent. It's a vow that you make, and it literally is saying, I'm here not under compulsion. I'm here because I want to be here. There's not some big stick behind me that's going to beat me if I'm not here. I'm here because I'm willingly here. And it's the vows. We often call them the I do statements. And the I do statements, like for, for, for me to say this to my wife, would be this. Do you promise to love her, comfort her? honor and keep her for better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and health. And here's the key, forsaking all others. Be faithful only to her for as long long as you both shall live. And of course, you want to hear an emphatic, I do. The forsaking all others is what Jesus is asking us there. When he in that scripture says that we are to renounce all of our stuff, all of our old hangups, It's a matter of saying, I'm forsaking them because I am committing to something better. Now, when my wife made that commitment to me, it wasn't at the expense of her niceness to you. And my wife is a lovely, kind lady. It's not like, I'm sorry, I have to be horrible to everyone else because I've made a commitment to my husband or you made a commitment to your wife. That forsaking all others comes down to this. I'm not going to share her. And she's not going to share me. And if that's the case, if we're not going to share each other with others, we're committing to one another. And through that love, we have greater capacity to love others. Now, in a very negative and sad way, some of you have experienced, or we're all aware of people that have experienced when people haven't forsaken all others. When relationships have broken down because of, of, of people choosing not to keep those vows. And it's, it's horrible and it's offensive to think of. And it takes years, if not a lifetime, to, to get over the, that, that emotion, that feeling. That's why I use that as a strong example. Because you think God looking at you and I and, and asking us to forsake all others. He's saying, I want you to love less the world and love me more and be my follower. What a wonderful invitation. But he says, I don't want to share you. I don't want to share you with priorities of even something as good as your family, because when you put me first, you will love your family better. But also we have the the, the choice, count the cost, to follow versus comfort. 
The followers is comfort. It goes on in verse number 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, we are familiar when we, we hear the word cross. Our thought, we come and we picture a symbol of hope. We have a symbol of salvation because Jesus Christ died on the cross and he rose from the dead and we have salvation. This is pre-Jesus dying on the cross. His disciples and followers at this time had no context of Jesus dying on the cross. So Jesus was literally saying, you're going to have to suffer if you're going to follow me. He wasn't mincing words. He wasn't giving them a get-rich-quick scheme. Follow me, and in 90 days, you'll be a millionaire. He doesn't say that at all. In fact, he says, follow me. You're going to carry an implement of torture and punishment on, on your shoulders. Jesus when he talked to his disciples, every single one of them suffered for the name of Jesus. We have the choice to follow or to remain in our worldly comfort. There's a missionary mantra. When I was in Bible college, a missionary came to one of our classes and he talked about the country that he went to. And I'll be very kind in saying the country he went to, they ate interesting things. Is that, is that you understand? And so they ate interesting things and, and trying to assimilate into the culture and not offend. He would have to, often have to sit in front of, of a meal and be fed things that he would not normally naturally choose on a menu. And he came up with this mon- mantra, and I, I've since found out he stole it from someone else, but that's where I heard it the first time. He says this, Where he leads me, I will follow. What he feeds me, I will swallow. And we think about life following Jesus Christ. Oh, following Jesus Christ. If you're in the perfect will of God, everything will be easy for you. But in reality, that's not the case at all. The Apostle Peter, later on, was writing to scattered Jewish people across the known, the known world at the time. And as he wrote to these people, these people are described in, in 1 Peter chapter number 1, in the very first verse, verse, as the exiles of the dispersion. You see, what was taking place is the Christians were being persecuted in Jerusalem, and they were becoming more and more insular. And then God in his providence allowed that persecution to actually scatter the Jews, so they took the message of the gospel, not just in Jerusalem, and they began to spread it throughout the known world. So in a very real way, God was forcing these people to become evangelists and missionaries everywhere they went. And the Apostle Peter was writing to them. And as he wrote to them in chapter number 4, of 1 Peter, he gives them, again, a reality check and says, you know what, you're suffering, but you're suffering for a good cause. It's worth it to follow Jesus Christ and to not experience short-term comfort. He says in verse number 12 of chapter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to you to test you. None of us go, oh, I love it when bad things happen to me. I love it when I suffer for doing right. As though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the, Holy, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And verse 15 gives us a focus. But 
Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. In other words, don't suffer and because you don't claim that you did something wrong. You you you're a thief and you complain. Oh, God is boy. Life is so hard as a Christian. No, you're a thief and you're suffering because you are a thief. And basically, don't don't claim that you're suffering because you're doing something dumb. But praise God when you're suffering for doing right. And he goes on in verse 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. And verse 19 continues on and says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. These people have been scattered around and they were suffering as a result. But God, through through Peter, says, you're suffering for doing right. Praise God and rejoice. The question is, is it worth it to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Is it worth it? If you count the cost, is it worth it to to follow him over my family, to follow him over my comfort? And the second part is the second point this morning is consider the reward. We're invited to count the cost. Jesus Christ doesn't mince words and say, you know what? I'm not going to tell people what really is going to happen to them because they might not follow me. And I have no doubt that many people cease to follow. But he was telling them the truth. And he invites us to change our perspective from a short-term perspective to a long-term perspective. To think beyond the immediate, like, as a Christian, nothing bad could ever happen to me. Bad things happen to Christians all the time. Christians suffer because they do right, and we suffer because we do wrong. We suffer because we take the name of Jesus. We suffer sometimes because we follow. We suffer because we don't do what the rest of the world does, and we're seen as as unusual or weird people. Consider the reward. We don't want to settle for good when we can strive for the greater. So with that, count the cost. The first reward we see is that we have a purpose fulfilled. That is the total opposite to what the world teaches. Thinking of the children that were born this last couple of weeks, you know, thinking of my own children and holding them for the first time and the sense of responsibility that you have as you look at those children and you think about the years and, and, and you look at that child and go, you know what the world, world would actually say? This precious, beautiful little child you are a cosmic accident. You have no purpose. There's nothing beyond this life. And as believers in Jesus Christ, we find in the word of God that we were created with a purpose. And we're not some cosmic accident, but we're created to live this life, but also we're created to live for eternity. And we're created by God, not by surprise, but he says, I have a plan and a purpose for your life. That changes the way we look at our children, even when they keep us up at 3 a.m. You go, oh, you little blessings. Verses 28 through 30, it gives us the example of a man building a tower. And it says, For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Or otherwise, when he has laid a foundation, is not able to finish. All who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. That last line, able to finish. Let's turn that whole story around and let's think of the goal is we're the goal is to finish. And as people that are followers of Jesus Christ, 
we are disciples of him, he allows us to finish our purpose. The Apostle Paul is a man who was an incredible evangelist, but he also suffered horribly. If you're going to travel with anyone, you better be ready to suffer if you're going to travel with the Apostle Paul. When the Apostle Paul traveled and he preached the name of Jesus, he ended up in prison. Or he was beaten. If you take a sailing ship with him, he's going to be shipwrecked. All these horrible things happen to him. In other words, if you don't follow Paul around, you will be safe and sound. And as he's talking about this, he, he, he changes the perspective off of the immediate, woe is me, My, I got beaten again, or I got, or I got left for dead again. He turns it around and says in Acts chapter 20, verse number 24, but I do not count my life as value nor as precious to myself. He changed his perspective. If only, and here's the goal, I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel and the grace of God. The question that you would ask the Apostle Paul is, is it worth it? Did he enjoy the beatings? He's not sadistic. I guarantee he goes, that hurt. I don't want to experience that again. I didn't enjoy being shipwrecked again. I didn't enjoy being mocked. Every one of us naturally likes to be esteemed and likes to be supportive and likes people to like us. But the Apostle Paul says, I have a change of perspective because I have a purpose. Following Jesus Christ is worth it. There's a man named Dr. William Leslie. And this story, um, I will not try to embellish it at all. But William Leslie was originally from Canada. And then he felt a, he was a medical doctor. And he, uh, in fact, he was a pharmacist. And he, and he felt a, a call to ministry and ended up going to what became the, Demi the, the Democratic Republic of Congo. In the, eight, in the early, like 1901, 1906, he arrived in the Congo. And he began to, to serve in his medical missions, and he had a particular call to what was known as an unreached people group. And it was not easy to get to. You had to fly into a particular area, and you had to take a boat, and then you had to hike into the jungle, and you, and you came across these people that were unreached. And over the course of years, he was there for 17 years, he began to teach, he began to um, not just teach the gospel, but also gave them education, taught them how many people how to read. And at the end of 17 years, he actually left the Congo very discouraged, thinking that he had not made an impact. Eight years later, after returning to, after he returned to the United States, he passed away in 1935. 65 years later, in the year 2000, there was a missionary organization that was seeking to map out and to find unreached people groups. And they began to fly into this particular area, take the long boat ride and take the long hike, searching for these people they knew were in the distance that, had not been, that they didn't think had been reached by the gospel. And they were surprised to find, across these villages of these seemingly unreached people, there was eight churches across the villages and in that time he had taught people how to read and they had some bibles and they had a very very basic understanding of the gospel but they had churches and they had their own uh, what they considered choirs but it was just you know their own style because they had never seen anything outside of themselves and 
For 65 years later, there was churches and Christians there. William Leslie died 65 years earlier, not knowing any of that, thinking that he had not succeeded at all. There was a hymn written in 1941, so William Leslie would not have heard this hymn. But I think it summarizes his life very well. It's the hymn, It Will Be Worth It All. It says, Oft times the day seems long, our trials hard to bear. We're tempted to complain, to murmur and despair. But Christ will soon appear to catch his bride away, all tears forever over in God's eternal day. And the chorus goes, and this is the encouraging part, It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will erase. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. We have the invitation to count the cost and consider the reward. The reward is that you have been created with a purpose that you can fulfill in Jesus Christ. The second is in the short term. But it's also the short term looking for the long term is that we can experience peace. Peace experienced. You see, when you know Christ as your Savior and you have peace with God, your Creator, we naturally and through that will develop the peace of God in our circumstances. Many of your circumstances are not naturally peaceful. You go through some really difficult and hard times and you go through conflict at work and difficulties in relationships and hardship in your finances and hardships in your health and you think, how can I possibly have peace in when everything is un unpeaceful. That's the blessing of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. In that passage in Luke 14, it talks about someone going to war and counting the cost of going to war. And as they count the cost, they, they discover that they need to develop peace. And the goal behind is the last line of verse 32, where it says, terms of peace. You see, we have the ability now to experience peace today because we have hope for the future. And your circumstances are not promised to be easy. In fact, if anything, we find Jesus saying your, your circumstances are going to be hard. The world hates you. And we can't allow the present comforts and the, even our family to come between our relationship with Christ. We need to love them less and love him more. And as we love him more, we will naturally love others more also. There's a lady named Corey Ten Boom. She was a Christian author, and she's most well known as a Holocaust survivor, and she was in one of the internment camps, and she and her family were in there. Her entire family died, but she alone survived because they were there because they were hiding Jews in Belgium from the Nazis. And she said this, there are no ifs in God's world and no places that are safer than other places. The center of his will is our only safety. Let us pray that we may know, always know it. My encouragement to you this week is to count the cost. Accept the invitation that Jesus is saying to you. If you know Christ is your Savior, he's saying, I love you. I have a purpose for you. I want you to know me more. Now, will you be a follower of me?